hello everyone. I'm Elliot. You, you can find the Bible reading in your book on page 19. We're reading Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 to chapter 6 verse 9. So please read with me. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, 
and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Thanks, Elliot. And a special welcome to our graduates who are amongst us. Let's give them a big applause. They are here. There's a few of them here, and uh, they've made a big sacrifice to be with us. Uh, there were a couple last night as well, but uh, thank you for being with us. We know it's a big deal to give up uh, a night and spend uh, a night with us as unruly as we are. Um, we're going to look at a text of scripture uh, that many find hard in various ways. Uh, and I'm going to lead some prayer that we might indeed hear what it is that God has to say and that it will take root in our lives for his glory. So please join with me. We thank you, dear Father, that you have given us the sheer privilege of hearing your voice in scripture. And thank you, Father, that it is clear and that even though there are parts that are not so much hard to understand but hard to listen to, we pray that you will so move our hearts from that of reluctant acceptance to joyful obedience, knowing that your way is always always the best way to live. We pray that we might obey you for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you want to follow God's lead? As I prayed in my prayer just then, it may be that you see some things in Scripture, but you just reluctantly accept it, rather than see that it really is the best way to live. Do you want to know God's specific plan for your life? Well, we've spent a few days looking at that, and questions have already been flying. Yes, we do. We want to know God's specific plan for our lives, but why do we want to know that? Well, here are some possible suggestions that come from a book called Just 
Do It by Kevin DeYoung. I haven't seen it on our bookstall, but it's available online, so you can check it out sometime. But here are some examples uh, that Kevin gives, which I think are on the money. Firstly, one of the reasons we want to well, find out God's specific plan for our lives is because, firstly, we want to please God. That's a great thing, isn't it? We want to please God. Over the years, I've met earnest students who really want to do what they think God has specifically planned for them. And they don't want to let him down. I can think of someone right now who's just that way. They really, really want to please God. And when we don't know his specific plan, then it becomes really overwhelming that we don't know what the best decision is because we feel that we might not be pleasing God. Second reason is, well, the kind of flip side, the other side of the coin, is that we also want fulfillment. We want fulfillment. See, by and large, your grandparents' generation expected much less out of family life or career or recreation or marriage, but your generation expects so much more, doesn't it? If we get a girlfriend or boyfriend, we expect sparks throughout the whole relationship. If we get married, we expect great sex. If we get a job, we expect great satisfaction. When we grow old, we expect good health, all because we think that God wants us to be fulfilled in some sense. We've assumed that we'll experience heaven on earth, and then we get disappointed when earth seems so unheavenly. Another common reason we want to know God's specific plan for our lives, thirdly, is because we have too many choices. We can choose courses at uni. We can major in a hundred of things. We can do, what is it, medical science and law and also give it up. We can um, meet thousands on social media. We can shop at hundreds of stores online. There are just so many choices. What do we choose? Have you ever put on Netflix and then you're there 45 minutes later and you haven't chosen anything? And then you just give up and go to sleep. You kind of think, what a great use of 45 minutes that was. I just heard a, a, a talk that was given by uh, someone graduating from Harvard University. Right? And he was the kind of star graduate. And he said, life is just like choosing Netflix. It can be like that. And he said, the most radical thing you can do is choose one movie and watch it damn well to the end. Right? That's the most radical thing you can do. And it was a parable of life to actually choose something in life and go for it and commit to it all the way through. But that leads to the third thing, you see. Why is it that we want God's specific plan for our lives? Because we don't want to take risks. We're obsessed with safety and security in the future. That's why our prayers are often in one of two categories. You know, we ask that everything will be fine or we ask that we know that everything will be fine. And all this makes decision-making really hard for us, doesn't it? In fact, the word decide did you know, comes from the Latin word decidere, which means to cut off. To cut off, which explains why decisions are so hard. We can't stand the thought, we can't stand the thought of cutting off Options. When you decide something, you've cut something else off. And we don't want to cut it off, do we? We want all the options before us. And we're left wondering if we're settled for second best when we do decide something. 
We want this sense of peace. But the fact is that most decisions in life leave us feeling a little unsettled. If you decide to get married or move or buy a house, it will be unsettling because it's unknown. But this doesn't mean the Lord's withholding peace is a sign that you've made a wrong decision. Remember, the God who leads us is our loving, sovereign Father. Who is working all things for the good of those who love him. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. And God doesn't take risks. And because God doesn't take risks, we can. We'll fill that out as the night goes on. Obsessing about our future is not how God wants us to live because showing us our specific future is not God's ordinary way. His ordinary way, as we heard last night, is to speak to us in these last days by his Son, through his Spirit, in the Scriptures. And the Scriptures are sufficient for life and godliness, and they are sufficient to give us the principles to make any decision. Right? The principles to make any decision. And we already know his will, don't we? His large will, his mega will, where he's leading us, which is to the new creation where all things in heaven and on earth will be united in Jesus, under his headship. We know that's where he's heading us. We know how he's doing that in joining Jew and Gentile together into one body, one new humanity in Christ. But he does give us more specific instructions than we appreciate. God gives specific instructions in Ephesians than we appreciate. We've seen it there, but though I'm going to choose one word, but that one word occurs all through the book of Ephesians, and that word is walk. Walk. Your walk is your way of life. Your walk is how you live, right? So walk this way. This way. Here is some specific instructions, specific commands within the big will of God, as it were. Firstly, remember how you once walked. How you once walked. That was Ephesians 2. That we saw a couple of nights ago. You might recall in verses 1 and 2. that It says you were the walking dead. Following the world. The devil. And following the passions in our own lives. With a distorted love for the voices of the world. Rather than the voice of God. Bent in on ourselves. With a hellish delight to be independent of God. We were like cut flowers. Remember? We were the walking dead. Dead, Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. But God saved us by his unbelievable grace for a different walk. In Ephesians 2, 10 that we saw a couple of nights ago, God sovereignly prepared good works for us to walk in. Even before we became Christians, he prepared us for good walking. See, God doesn't take risks so we can take risks by faith in this God for the good walk that he's prepared in advance for us to walk in. Ephesians 
But what are these good works to walk in? The first command that again that we saw on Tuesday night was to remember. Remember, that was the first command in the book of Ephesians, to remember Ephesians 2 verse 12. Sorry, I'm, I'm just going through this quickly because you, you, you heard that on, a, on Tuesday night. Sorry, oh graduates, if you are joining us for the first time, but take the references down because we're going to look at plenty of Bible. But just as this summary to, to this point, Ephesians 2, 12 and 13, it's there. The first command was to remember, remember your Christian identity in relation to Israel. And the rest of chapters 2 and 3 remind us that God is uniting his people into this worldwide body made up of Jews and Gentiles. Remember your relationship to Israel in terms of history. That's part of the walk. But now we come to Ephesians 4. The third thing was don't walk like the Gentiles, the nations. Don't walk like the nations. That's in Ephesians 4 and verse 17, which sadly is actually not in your booklets, but it is in your Bibles. So please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Again, all my fault. I do apologize up front for not having this there. But if you can't find it quickly, listen very carefully. Again, I'm reading from the ESV, so it might be a little different to your translation. But the word that I'm trying to capture is the word walk. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Verse 17. Listen to the word of God. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk, live this way, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see, if you are a Christian, part of this worldwide body, this new humanity made up of Jew and Gentile Christians in Christ, then you are no longer to walk like you used to did in the past, like your pre-Christian Gentile life, like the Gentiles, the nations are living now. That is, darkened in their understanding, hard of heart. And in the context, it's hard of heart, especially when it comes to sexuality, isn't it? Callous, giving themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We'll come to this again in a moment. But sadly, I keep hearing of loved and trusted lead pastors of churches around the world continuing to walk in these ways and eventually found out for their sexual misconduct. I pick on pastors first because I am one, and so I'm preaching to myself. And for those of you who are thinking that you want to head into pastoral ministry, I'm speaking to you too. In each instance, it was because they thought they were making little decisions. Little decisions. You know, letting their eyes stray just a little bit, viewing immoral spam email every now and again, friend requests on Facebook, but in the end they're filled with illicit pictures. And you kind of think, oh, I can just look for a few seconds, it doesn't matter, and I'm going to delete it then. 
being alone in the car with someone we shouldn't have been alone with, and we think that's just every now and again, or the little decision seemingly to watch that MA15 Plus film because, well, you know, we're just immune to those little scenes here and there. And there are a million seemingly little decisions. But over time, these little decisions harden your heart and they cause you to walk why, as the nations did, the Gentiles did. And in the end, you see, there's no such things as little decisions or big decisions. The question is whether we seek to make decisions walking as the Gentiles do or walking as God wants us to do. Don't walk like the Gentiles. If you are in Christ, we're not to walk like that. God rather wants us to walk in love. In love. And here I think the text is in your Outlines on page 19 at the beginning, chapter 5, verse 1 at the beginning there. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Therefore be imitators, at the top of page 19, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk, there it is, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, love is the way we are to walk. Love like Jesus. Love sacrificially like Jesus. Love at cost to yourself is a Jesus-like love. That's what Jesus did. This was the heart of our seminar on ethics, I think, this morning. That is, every decision we make is ultimately about love. It's not whether it's a little decision or a big decision. That's actually a false category of thinking in the end. What is a right category of thinking, is it loving or is it not loving? Uh, in our elective that we held on decision-making as men and women, we realized that God even talks about how we should dress as men and women. It's even down to that kind of detail. And then people started asking rightly, does that mean you know, I can just dress up like anything? Or what, what if I do like a little bit of adornment and all the rest of it? And the question is, it's not whether you're going to look adorned or not. The question is, what's loving? How do you dress in a loving way? Oh, it doesn't matter what color socks you wear, does it? Oh, yes, it does, actually. Do you know if you go to a funeral in an Asian context that is Buddhist, to wear red socks is actually being insensitive and unloving. Do you know that? I think, really? Yeah, really. Even what socks you wear. Little decision? No. question is, is it loving? Not whether it's little or big. Is it loving? Walk in love. That means turning my natural bent on myself toward others. What is best for them? That's love, you see. That's costly. That hurts even. But that's what it means to walk in love. But interestingly, the application that Paul goes on to speak about, is in verse 3. What does it mean to walk in love? He goes on, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Here the word saints, I think, is every Christian, not Jewish Christians, right? That's the context that determines it. And their covetousness, a desire for what you do not have, 
in the context is not just covetousness generally, but covetousness for more sexual immorality and impurity, which is described earlier there in verse 3. Walking in love involves your sex life. But furthermore, it involves verse 4, your speech life. Look, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. You see, walking in love involves your sex life and your speech life. To walk in love is to be sacrificial like Jesus, especially in these areas. So what does it mean to be loving in your walk in these areas? Well, it means giving up something for the sake of the other. What will you give up to have a pure sex life? What will you give up? Maybe you'll actually give up alone time with your girlfriend or boyfriend when no one else is in the house. Maybe you'll give up that time in which you're going to be alone in each other's bedroom, let alone in the house. Why? Because it's actually loving to the other person. Maybe you'll give up screen time after 9pm because stuff just comes out that's not helpful on TV or being alone with your laptop at home. Maybe you'll give that up. Maybe you'll give up being alone at home because it's only you and your computer at home. That's costly, isn't it? But boy, it's worth it for the sake of love. Maybe it might even be giving up unhelpful affection within your dating relationship if you happen to be dating. You know, there are hugs and there are hugs, aren't they? There's the sideways hug. There's the front-on hug. There's kissing and there's kissing as well, isn't there? There's the sloppy grandmother kiss on the cheek that you kind of wipe off, you know, after a while. Or there's the kiss that you know gets other parts of your anatomy working in ways that it shouldn't be. And why do you kiss anyway? Because it's nice. Yeah. It's pleasant. The sensation on your lips, especially when it touches other lips. And that's what everybody does. But where is that line? I want to know where that line is so I can get as close to that line as possible without breaking that line. So I know I'm being pure, but I'm getting there. Oh, I better get away. Oh, no. oh too late. You know, what is that line? What is kissing for? Kissing, actually, can I say this? I can say this in a group. It's a university, you know, everybody's going red. Oh, no, he's going to talk about kissing. Oh, dear. <laughs> Kissing prepares you for intercourse, doesn't it? It actually does. The more and more you do it, the more it prepares you for what you know you shouldn't be doing if you're not married. It's 
So why do it? Because it feels good. I want to. But is that the most loving thing to do? Where does it stop? Where does it start? You're going to think, yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. I know I'm not going to go there. Well, how many people do I speak to where it's happened because they just haven't thought about it ahead of time because in the end, they're not loving, are they? So if you're not planning to have intercourse, can I say don't plan to kiss in that kind of way? Yeah. How do you plan that? Well, you actually, it's, it's a war. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. You've actually got to plan way ahead of time before it's actually going to happen. And can I say this to uh, either of you, whoever it is, I mean, some of you know how to push buttons rightly. And if you know how to do that, repent. Because it's really not going to be helpful, is it? It's pretty plain, isn't it? Don't walk as the Gentiles do. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous must not even be named among you. That's pretty straightforward. It's not as if, oh, other interpreters mean this, that, that can't mean that. It probably means... It's pretty plain. And what will you have to give up to have pure speech? Maybe alcohol? Maybe unhelpful movies? Maybe cutting humour? See, that's the way of love, isn't it? Oh, but it's so hard. How can it be so hard? No, it's actually the best thing, isn't it? Don't you think that this week has been, you know, some of you have found it harder than others in terms of content or whatever it is, but gee, it's easy to be a Christian here, isn't it? Compared to when you're on your own or whatever it is. Why is that? It's because we're kind of together. We're in the word of God. We're in this environment. We're really seeking to obey him, and that's a wonderful thing. Go back where the temptations are larger than life and it's just harder. And you watch, we're all going to be Dories. We're going to think, oh, yeah, it was great, great. And then we're just going to forget eventually and get back to our old patterns. But our prayer is that the pattern will be set because of the word of God. Now, I've mentioned some kind of detailed things, yeah? But can I say this? And I say this not to be boastful in any sense. But Jeanette and I actually covenanted that we wouldn't kiss on the lips until our wedding day for these very reasons. Can I say this? It would have been nice to beforehand. But we chose not to, as hard as it was and all the rest. And I, I especially in my role as a leader, and Jeanette in her role as a leader, we have to kind of do that thing, yeah? You're going to think, oh, that's, that's because you're old. <laughs> so old-fashioned. You can't even watch Netflix properly. <laughs> but why did we do it? Because we knew that we wanted to be not only righteous, but to be seen to be righteous as leaders of God's people in our capacity. You think that through, and uh, I'm happy for you to ask questions in all sorts of ways about that. Again, fill your thoughts not with trash, but with thanksgiving, end of verse 4. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. What we need is a better love than a love for sin, than a love 
for the voice of this world. And I will always, always love sin, and I'll always, always love the world more until I truly sense that Christ is better. And you've got to sense that Christ is better. Because if you don't sense that he's better, you're always going to do it your way. I'm always going to do it my way. Furthermore, he says, walk as children of light, verse 8. Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, right? Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Just to save my voice for a moment, why don't you turn to the person next to you and ask, what do you think it means to live as children of light? Why use that metaphor of light? Go for it. Person next to you, say hello. What does it mean to walk as children of light? Okay, love to hear your thoughts. Anybody on this section willing to share, just shout out, what does it mean to walk as children of light? Why the metaphor of light? What does light do? Anybody over this side? Sorry? It re reveals, yes, someone else is saying something. Sorry? Exposes, it reveals, it exposes. Anybody want to add anything to that or subtract from that on this side? Everything becomes visible when it's light. That's right. When it's darkness, it's hidden, isn't it? When it's light, it's exposed. That's what it means to walk as children of light. Right? Walking in the dark is quite a different experience to walking in the clear light of day. A lifestyle of darkness is one that is shameful and needs to be hidden. It's kept secret. That's why you know, if you want to do things in secret, you don't want other people to see it. But a lifestyle of light abounds in goodness and righteousness because you've got no fear of exposure, do you? Would you watch that Netflix episode if you knew your Bible study group was going to watch it with you? Would you say those things about that person if you knew that they could hear you? That's exposure, isn't it? Would you go too far with your girlfriend or boyfriend if you knew that someone could see you? No. That's why, let's not just keep it as a metaphor. Let's make it a reality. If you're driving in the car with your special friend, when the car stops, open the door. What happens? Light comes on. 
and you're exposed. It's very hard to do shameful things when the door is open, isn't it? That's why you don't close bedroom doors if you're in there alone with someone. Keep the door open. Don't be alone. Walk as children of light. Finally, walk wisely. Verse 15, the small number 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. What does wise walking involve? The best use of time. But it goes on to say, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, the will of uniting all under Christ. And then, verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And we're back to where we were last night. That is, walking wisely involves being filled with God's Spirit. Now, last night we looked at how that verse fits together with the main verb being filled with the Spirit and all those other things called participles, the I-N-G words, hanging off the main verb. And that's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another, singing and making melody and giving thanks and submitting to one another. But James Kerr helped me understand something today which was uh, very helpful. Uh, so in your Bibles, if you can uh, go back just to fill this out a little bit more, in Ephesians 1.22, it's not language of fullness and filling. So Ephesians 1 and verse 22, so you go back there, it uses this language of fullness. 1.22, and he, that is God, put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. What is he saying? That the worldwide body of Christ is filled when God in Christ is placed at the head. The worldwide body of Christ is filled, the church is filled, as it were, when God in Christ is placed at the head, the head over all things. Just bear that in mind. It's got to do with Christ's headship and him filling the body, its fullness regarding Christ. Turn to chapter 3 now, chapter 3, verse 17. We looked at that last night. Um, verse 17, chapter 3, which I think this one is in your booklet, so you can go there if you want to, in the ESV. It says, so that Christ, right, Christ may dwell in your hearts. Remember, we talked about his taking residence in our hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled, there's that filled word, with all the fullness of God. In other words, to be filled with all the fullness of God is to have Christ dwell in our hearts and comprehend his immeasurable love. So when we come to the language of filling in Ephesians 5, it makes sense that to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with Christ himself by his Spirit. And all these participles that hang off this main verb of being filled, to be filled with his Spirit, is to, is to address each other concerning Christ in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. It's to sing and make melody to the Lord Christ. 
is to give thanks in the name of Christ, is to submit to each other like Christ. It's all about Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see how that pans out in the issue of submission after we sing. For the Lord Christ has made us alive. But let's stand as we remember that we made made alive in Christ and then we'll come back to talk about marriage. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can sing such songs of your grace and mercy with joy in our hearts, knowing that you have rescued us and brought us back by your undeserved generosity, your grace. And so by your grace, as we now come to tackle various issues more specifically, please help us to joyfully obey you. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Part of walking wisely is to be filled with Christ by his spirit. That involves those various participles that we talked about before. But the last of those participles, the last of those ING words is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here is God's specific will for wives to husbands and children to parents and bondservants to masters. It is to be filled with Christ by his spirit to submit. But the word submit plainly means to place yourself under the authority of another. That's what it clearly means. It is to order yourself under someone else. But as such, I'm acutely aware that the word submit is almost a defeater belief. That is, a belief that when raised is defeated because of a common consensus in our community that it makes it implausible, makes it unbelievable. Because the word submit conveys a sense of injustice, of inequality, of having no rights. Similarly, the word head or headship conveys a sense of abuse, I want to say, though, that if you are a victim of abuse in the name of headship or submission, I am sorry. That really is awful. And there is no place for a sinful distortion of headship or submission in marriage or in the wider family or in the church or in society. None. And you ought to talk to someone about it if that's happening. But the ultimate solution is not to erase any notion of submission or headship. There are people who are seeking to erase the word out of the English language because they just think it's so abusive. But that's not the case. right? What we are to erase is any sinful notion of submission or headship. To embrace a Christ-saturated notion of submission or headship in God's word. Christ himself submits. Christ himself is the head. We can take our cue from Christ himself. 
So firstly, if you are a wife, and dare I say a would-be wife, what is God's word to you? Verse 22 of chapter 5. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the analogy is between Christ and his body, the church, this worldwide body. And just as the church submits to Christ, so too wives should submit to their own husbands. But as such, submission is a voluntary thing. Right? We voluntarily submit to Jesus. Jesus voluntarily submits to his father. When he took upon himself the anger of his father, he did not do so as a child with no consciousness. There is a theory out there that it is cosmic child abuse that is taking place. Jesus was no child. There was no abuse. He voluntarily submitted himself to that because his will with his father was one, perfectly one. And your Submission in whatever of these relationships is voluntary. Jesus was not unequal to his father because he is fully God. Just as, as we submit to a police officer doesn't make us unequal to the police officer. Because we are fully human, just like the police officer is fully human. But we submit. So if you choose to submit, voluntarily submit as a wife, it does not mean being a doormat. It doesn't mean having no opinion. It doesn't mean being bound to the kitchen. It doesn't mean being owned as his property or his sexual chattel, as it were. And furthermore, it's wrong to submit to your husband if he wants you to do anything that is clearly not pleasing to God in his word. It's actually wrong to submit in that context. What you are to do is to submit to the consequences as it were, in doing the right thing and submitting yourself to God. And if you feel that you are in a situation that involves that kind of abuse, then you ought to talk to someone about it. Rather, voluntary submission means willingly honouring your husband as God's appointed head over you and rejoicing in his initiative to serve you just like Jesus did with his father as his head. But this can only work if you respect your head. Submission involves respect. For it's very hard to submit to your husband if you do not respect your husband. Look at verse 33 of chapter 5. Verse 33, so the end of that section in that second last paragraph. However, let each one of you, speaking to husbands, each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Respect. Good marriage vows for the wife will include her promise to respect her husband. But can I ask you, who are potential wives, do you respect your potential husband in the Lord? 
Because that's how you make a decision regarding who you go out with if they ask you. Can you respect his godly initiative to love you by leading you in godliness? Can you respect his desire and attempt to do so, even if he doesn't quite do it in a way that makes you feel loved? So just picture this scenario. The husband tries to surprise his wife and makes dinner for her. But the only thing he knows how to cook is boiled eggs. So he boils it and he boils it and he boils it and even then it doesn't come out good. It's all not good. <laughs> she comes home and she'd love a three-course meal and baked dinner or something else. But he's tried, he's tried his heart out. You know. Is she going to respect his initiative to do that? He's like, oh, that's so stupid. That was pathetic, husband. I prefer this meal instead. Go off, I'll do the cooking. See what I'm getting at? It's the initiative. They've tried. They've tried real hard. But hopefully they'll try harder. <laughs> but they've tried, right? But it's not just that. You know, it, you know is it the colour choice? Even? You've chosen the wrong colour of something in terms of an item of clothing that you tried to buy for your wife, which happens to be three sizes too big for whatever she because you have no clue what her size is or something or other. And then you kind of think, like, oh, but I've tried. But it, it's the trying that's the, the issue, yeah? I, I, I'm giving it a go because husbands who are having a go at that, would you respect that? So respect is the seemingly biblical love language of men. Women want to be cherished and adored, whereas men want to be respected. So dear sisters, here is a framework that I'm suggesting to you if a Christian boy asks you out. I'm asking sisters here. I'm speaking sisters, right? If you are a Christian, firstly, the question should be, is he a Christian? That should be the case, shouldn't it? That's the first question. If you are a Christian, dear sister, you should be asking, is he a Christian? Because it doesn't make sense to date someone who is not a Christian if you are a Christian. It just doesn't make sense. Because... The major influence in your life is the Lord Jesus Christ who is your head. And that's where everything is headed in terms of his plans and purposes. I'm aligning my will with his will. And if he doesn't align his will with God's will, then you've got a major clash in the very center of your life. So it just does not make sense to go out with a non-Christian if you are a Christian. And if that is you, and I have no idea who it is here possibly, but establishing your mind now to break it up. Because it's just not worth it in the end. It's going to cause so much pain. You think, well, how else is he going to hear about Christianity? He'll hear it off someone else. You can orchestrate that somehow and ask a boy to me. They say, oh, they all want to study the Bible. That's great. Well, get them to study with a boy. Say, no, no, they're not going to meet with a boy. They just want to meet with me. Well, that shows you something, doesn't it? <laughs> you don't flirt to convert. Is he a Christian if you are a Christian? Secondly, is he free to marry? It's just these are 
plain things in the Bible. Right? He's got to be free to marry. You can't be married if you're... Right. Thirdly, I just want to go with what's clear in Scripture. Let's go with the things that are a little less clear, but I think the trajectory is there. Does he have, this is, I'm speaking to sisters here, does he have the same theological trajectory and ministry trajectory as you do? Because that can really get you to strife. You're not in the same trajectory. And there's no way you're going to learn what kind of trajectory they are on if you're not reading the Bible together. Hint, 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 hint. You've got to read the Bible together to work those things out, don't you? So please read the Bible together and forget the folly of not reading the Bible together if you are dating as whoever is saying that out there. Next question, do you respect him enough to submit to his loving initiative? Do you respect him enough to submit to his loving initiative? The final question I've got here is, do you enjoy hanging out with him? You can fit all the other categories, but you might just hate his presence. You know, <laughs> I mean, that, that's a bit sad, really, isn't it? it kind of helps that you enjoy hanging out with him. Yeah. Kind of like, there's, there's got to be a bit of chemistry there somewhere, right? But no, that's the last thing. That's the last thing. All those other things got to be in place first. Trouble is, we go with that thing that's last first, and then all the other things become subsidiary, and that's a disaster. It's got to be the last thing. Okay? There's a framework. Next category. If you are a husband or would-be husband, what is God's word to you? Verse 25. Husbands and would-be husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. That is, if you are a husband or a would-be husband, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And like Jesus, we are to move heaven and earth and hell to lay down our lives for her. And if that means dying for her, so be it. Please know, dear husbands and would-be husbands, if you do die for her, that doesn't make you Superman. Superman can die, by the way. I saw that in a movie. He, he can die. Right. But it doesn't make you that Superman anyway, does it? Because all you're doing is your job. That's all you're doing. Don't think like, oh, gee, I'm doing all this sacrificing. I'm, I'm doing more than boiled eggs. I'm giving her fried eggs. Whoa. You know, giving up more time, more time with my life, more sacrifice. Now, I've got to be willing to die for her. The shape of marriage for the husband is the shape of a cross. And our responsibility is to care for her, to nurture her, to protect her as if she's part of our own bodies. Right? To love her is to love ourselves, to love our own bodies. To abuse her is to abuse our bodies, to chop off our arms, as it were. Chop off our body. 
So if you have no desire to do this, then don't even entertain the thought of dating someone. Why do you date someone? It's actually with a view to thinking about marriage. You're too old now, sorry. Gone are the days where dating is just you know, kicking a tyre to see whether you can buy a car. It's not that anymore. You're playing around with people's emotions and lives. You don't date just to have a bit of fun, just so that you can get a, a bit of kissing and cuddling. And that's, I mean, that's abuse, isn't it, in the end? So, fellows, if you're taking the initiative and you're going to ask someone out, you've got to be quite clear. You know? It's like, um, do you want to um, have a coffee? Just to sip coffee? I can buy a piccolo. We'll talk about music. Have a coffee and then that's it. That's all you talk about, coffee. Got to be a bit clearer than that, don't you? So be clear. Right. That's actually loving in the end. But this whole dating business is a bit ridiculous, isn't it, at one level? And I hope you came to the lecture. I just looked at the whiteboard. That looks absolutely impressive. So I hope you can... I feel like taking a picture and downloading into my head so I can repeat whatever was said. But here's the thing. Dating is not in the Bible, is it? There are also principles that we can learn from the Bible to actually date, but it's actually not a thing in the Bible. So we're kind of stuck with it in this setting. But I want to say in that first coffee or whatever it is, I asked Jeanette out for an orange juice because neither of us drink coffee. <laughs> so <laughs> while we're sipping on our orange juice, we talked about such things. But anyway, coming back to you got to be, it's not as if on that first encounter, as it were, you're measuring the size of the ring finger. <laughs> that's, that's, not, that's too much pressure there, isn't it? You've got to think, ah, I'm already stuck. I've married this person. I've had a coffee with them. You know? it's, not, it's, it's, it's not that. Right. But it is thinking through what issues there are there and saying it's clear that I do want to get to know you with this possibility somehow, but I don't want to put that kind of... You know, it's an awkward kind of thing, but... but you want to be lovingly clear in the process, though. That's what I want to suggest to you. But I don't want to have such you know, uh, unhelpful, overwhelming pressure at the same time. But I am saying to you, if you have no desire to lay down your life for a potential person, a wife, then there's no point entertaining dating. It's not just hanging out. And if by God's grace you do become a husband... What could this mean in practice for you? I've got four points here. Firstly, value her as your equal. Uh, 1 Peter 3.7, she is your co-heir in Christ. Your co-heir. Right. Second bullet point, cherish your wife. Help her to feel loved. Not just love her, help her to feel loved. Actually ask her, what makes her feel loved? You could be surprised what makes her feel loved. It could be as simple as putting the toilet seat down <laughs> regularly. Right? That can actually make her feel loved. It could surprise you. Value her as your equal. Secondly, cherish her and help her to feel loved. Thirdly, try and make submission a joy for her. Try and make submission a joy for her. Darling, please let me change the nappies. Oh, be my guest. <laughs> That's submission. Yeah? 
how about I cook tonight? How about I turn off the World Cup soccer and watch Downton Alley with you? <laughs> because it's Downton Abbey and not Alley. But that's what I want to watch with you because I want to familiarise myself with how to pronounce it properly. And I'm going to give up watching the World Cup soccer for it. I'm going to give it up, right? You willing to do that? Make submission a joy for her? Some of you are thinking, oh, there's no way I'm going to get married now because I want my soccer. I'm going to stay single for the rest of my life now. Well, you've got to be willing. This will mean sacrifice on your part. Right? Don't even think about asking someone out unless you are prepared to do these things at great cost to yourself and your time. Because that's the stuff of marriage. It's not the sparks that like, keep on going. doing. This. It's actually laying down your life for them. So brothers, here is the framework for you to consider if you want to ask someone out. Is she a Christian if you are a Christian? It's got to be a Christian for the same reasons that we talked about. Is she free to marry? Right? Same framework. Are you willing to lay down your life for her? Can you cherish her? Help her feel loved? And here we come to, I guess, categories of wisdom coming out of this. These are the principles. Will she be submissive to your initiatives to serve her? Because if she's the kind of person who keeps on saying, bleh, to all your initiatives, then you know it's not going to be an easy road. Is it? And does she have the same theological trajectory, ministry trajectory, than you do? So, same thing, and do you enjoy being with her, right? That, that helps. But I, I can share this uh, friend of mine. Uh, some of you know this, but, uh, but I know that he said that he's given me permission to actually speak publicly about that. Um, he was engaged. Uh, for a long time, he was told by his youth group leader not to read the Bible with your girlfriend. Uh, they were engaged after a while, but the engagement broke up because they weren't on the same page with regard to a philosophy of ministry, theological issues to do with the role of men and women in particular. And it was painful for this dear brother and sister but they didn't discover that till, till well into their engagement. That's why you've got to be able to think through, is this person of the same theological trajectory, same ministry trajectory? If you are so designed to go on the mission field and this person has no interest on thinking about global mission, it, it's, that's going to be just a rocky thing, yeah? You've got to think through that, pray through that together. Start talking about that very early on. I know in one of the relationships here, they actually talked about, they, they tested each other theologically on things. I think they went through doctrinal statements, you know, what they believe on stuff. And good on them is what I say. Good on them, you know. They're thinking through, oh, yeah, yeah. Now, just a quick word to those of you who are not dating anyone. Please hear that you're not forgotten. I've talked about husbands and wives and the principles coming out of this for dating. But it may be that the seemingly right person just has not come along. 
It may be that no one is asking you out, even though you'd love to be in a relationship. It may be that you're too scared to ask someone out. It may be that you're attracted to someone of the same sex and therefore you feel like you just can't ever marry. And I have personal friends in that situation. I'm just going to step out of Ephesians for one moment and I want you to turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Mark 10, verse 29. Mark 10, verse 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I just want to show you the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. That living for him will mean giving up all sorts of things, including brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. But if we do so for his sake and the gospel, we will receive blessings a hundredfold now. And you might be wondering, what kind of blessings are going to be if I'm going to be a single person because I just have not had the opportunity? The blessings are brothers and sisters and houses and so on. I'm not talking about mansions or whatever, but I certainly am talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm talking about family. I'm talking about knowing God as your Father and Jesus as your Lord and every Christian as a brother and sister in Christ and all the blessings that come in being part of a Christian family. Do know the privilege it is to serve Christ and his gospel. And it will be painful. And for those of us who are married and those of us who are on the trajectory to marriage because you're there's always there's someone there etc well praise god but don't ever neglect your friends who are single will you if you're in that boat for whatever reason and can i say that even if you are engaged you don't know if that person's actually going to marry you until she or he says i will now i'm all set don't set the suit's been picked out. It's a really sad story I know of where they all were set and the bride was going to make this grand entrance through a helicopter landing. It was actually in the Illawarra. I think it was in the Illawarra. But, uh, the helicopter crashed and she died on the day of her wedding. It's really sad, isn't it? You actually don't know. God is sovereign in all things. Until he or she says, I will on the wedding day, you don't know for sure because God hasn't shown you the specific plan.
So trust God with everything, won't you? Well then, I hope I can get through this a little more quickly. But what about God's specific will for children and then for fathers and then for bond servants? I'll try and race through this as best I can so that we can have a good time to reflect and some question time later. Come back to Ephesians chapter 6. God's specific will for children. Chapter 6, verse 1 there, last paragraph, second last paragraph. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. See, this command is presumably for children who are old enough to understand what obedience means because it's addressed to children. But what about adult children? You know, we are to honour our parents, verse 2, right? Honour your father and mother. And the promise is that they will enjoy the inheritance of the land. For the old covenant Israel, this referred to the promised land. But for we who are Christians, we who are in Christ, we who are under the new covenant, it is the promised inheritance of heaven that is on view. And as heavenly citizens, we are to honour our parents, To those of us who are local Aussies, can I say that we need to recognize this, that your parents loved you, that they raised you, they provided for you, and honoring them as those who changed your nappies means that you honor their reputation. I think that's what it means to honor your parents, is to honor their reputation. Sometimes it means disobeying them But that's because it's disobeying their desire for you to do something that is displeasing to God. But that's really, I suspect, more a temptation or rather the the hard thing and the challenge for international students amongst us. Because I need to say to those of us who have a really good and wonderful relationship with our parents that if our parents want us to do something that is clearly not pleasing to God then disobeying them is still, di- still honouring them. Sometimes your parents, and I've heard of this, want you to somehow cheat in exams. But you know that's displeasing to God. And they're upset with you because you're not going to get the kind of marks that you need in order to get to the next stage. Or sometimes it's going against their will for their desire for you to marry a non-Christian or to pursue a career when you actually want to go into full-time ministry. But you know, you're actually honouring their reputation by doing the right thing, even though it might be disobeying their desires. My own story is this, that my father really did not want me to give up the career I was going to go into. Cut a long story short, he actually said, I'm willing to beg in front of you, in front of, this is in... Uh, near Central Station, all these people coming down, so I'm willing to come down on my knees before you and beg you to not do this. And I just can't, I couldn't go. This is my beautiful, wonderful father, but he just did not want me to go into full-time ministry. And I just had to stop, get out of the car and say, I love you, Dad, but I, I can't do this. And for a, you know, a good part of six months to a year, he just didn't talk to me. This is awful. But in God's kindness, things changed. And Sorry, I'll... It was because I was giving up medicine, uh, but it was helpful that I married a doctor <laughs> later on. Uh, but, it, but in the end, 
he could see the change in our lives and he could see that God's way actually works when his millionaire friends had children who were just going off the edge in all sorts of other ways. And you know, we have the best of relationships now. At the time, he thought I was disobeying and dishonouring him. I don't know whether he would have the word to comprehend what's taken place in the past. But I actually think I was honouring him. I don't know where you stand in that spectrum, but please do think what it means to honour your father and mother. Particular words to fathers here in verse 4. If you're going to become a father, you need to hear these words. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We who are would-be fathers, and there are at least two other fathers, three other fathers in this room, I can see that we as fathers, we're not to provoke them, to crush their spirits with what we say to them and cause them to anger because words scar for life. If you're going to be a would-be father, you've got to keep that in mind. And if you're a child, you know what that's like, don't you? And if you have a father who has abused you by what they say and caused you to anger and in causing you these, these feelings, then you know what it's like. Don't be like that. It's a particular word to those of you who are going to be fathers. Now we've reflected on marriage, reflected a bit on family. Now what about the institution of slavery? Now when we think of slavery, we usually think of slave trading ships with black people in the time of the Americas who were abused so horrifically. But you know, in the first century, slaves held all sorts of positions in Rome alone, up to 80 to 90% of the population were slaves or former slaves. And no doubt many were abused, but along the spectrum there were also slaves who cared for the house or even put in charge of businesses like Joseph. The Bible doesn't seem to condemn the institution of slavery, but neither does it endorse the institution of slavery. Paul encourages slaves here to gain, uh, slaves in other parts of the scriptures to gain their freedom if they can. But what the Bible does condemn is the abuse of slavery. He condemns enslavers. You can check that out in 1 Timothy 1.10. You can just check that out, 1 Timothy 1.10 at some other point. Those who take people captive in order to sell them into slavery is what he condemns. But in our text, what do we learn in verses 5 to 7 here? Verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Please note, there were slaves and masters in the Ephesian church, right? He's actually speaking to them. It at least appears that slaves had the freedom to attend church, perhaps even with their masters, given that he addresses them both directly. But the big point to them both is that they both have Jesus as their Lord. For the slave, their earthly masters, the, the word is earthly masters in the original, lords according to the flesh. Lords according to the flesh. That is, their authority is limited to the flesh. Their authority is limited to this world. But their heavenly master, no, their heavenly master is Jesus. And Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. So Jesus has unlimited authority, whereas their uh, heads, the masters, have limited authority to this world. Jesus has unlimited authority. So as you serve your earthly Lord... 
Remember, you are really serving your heavenly Lord. Jesus is the one you're ultimately accountable to. So fear Jesus in your work. Serve Jesus. Work hardly for Jesus as you serve the one that Jesus has placed over you, doing the will of God from your heart. That will mean you'll serve faithfully, even when your earthly master can't see what you're doing, right? In terms of eyewitnesses, that's what he means. Not by way of eye service. For unlike your earthly masters, Jesus can see everything. So therefore, serve Jesus, because he can see everything that you do. If you do your work and you steal the paper clips or you steal this video or you steal this stuff online or you steal Jesus can see that. Your earthly master might not see that, but Jesus can. Which is why we read in verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Jesus cares about everything, and he will actually judge what earthly masters can't see, but he sees. So who do these verses apply to? Too often, people immediately jump to the employee-employer relationship. But in so many parts of Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, families have domestic servants that these verses apply directly to. I've been in homes of several of our missionaries who have had servants out of economic reality to help them get an income they couldn't otherwise get. And they are to render service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. Serve their master in a way that serves Jesus. And in the West, I suspect there is more direct application to people in prisons or those who have had to pay back their debts with their time, such as bonded scholarships. I know medical students in Townsville who are bonded for seven or eight years after graduating. That's pretty close to slavery. In the end, I have a smiling medical student in front of me who might apply to, I don't know. Does it apply to you, Justin? No, okay. He's a free medical student. I know slave medical students, right, in in the part of the world that you have come from. And if you are a master, what's God's word to you? Verse 9, masters do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. That is, the way you treat your bondservant should be a reflection of how Jesus treats you. I've seen a domestic servant become a Christian in a Christian home where her earthly masters treated her not only justly and fairly, but loved her enough to share the gospel with her as one of her own family. I understand that George Whitfield, despite his endorsement of slavery as an institution, shaped or shared the gospel, rather, with slaves and saw many converted, so much so that there were more slaves at his funeral than white people. Because he loved them, even though he was endorsing the institution of slavery, the way he treated his slaves was far, far from the slave owners around him. Now, if these verses apply to the slave-master relationship, how much more should they apply derivatively to the employee-employer relationship? So here's how it applies to you, dear brothers and sisters. If you are an employee, serve your earthly employers with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Work hardly for Jesus. Work hard, responsibly. And employers, if you're going to be a boss in some way, 
Treat your employees justly and fairly, knowing that you have a CEO in heaven. So brothers and sisters, here is God's specific will for your lives in the areas of marriage, in the areas of family, in the areas of work. But I just want to finish with a framework of thinking now. Right? Here is a working framework for making decisions. One, as you come to any decision, what does God's sufficient word clearly say on the issue? What does it clearly say on the issue? Like here in Ephesians, we've worked through so many specific commands. Uh, in the elective that Jeanette and I ran on decision-making as men and women, we saw that there were specific decisions that we could make regarding clothing, right? what you wear. It, it's as detailed as that. So look for specific commands in Scripture that are there. That, that's clear, isn't it? Firstly, look at what the Bible says. Secondly, if there are no clear word on the issue, what principles are there from God's sufficient word that can help you make any decision? What principles are there from God's sufficient word that can help you make any decision? We looked at that. The Bible doesn't speak about dating. So I tried to give you some principles from the marriage text that apply to dating. Do you see that? You can do that with other issues as well. I tried to do it from uh, the institution of uh, the slave and master thing to work. There were principles that you can draw out. Thirdly, now that you are aware of these principles, grow prayerfully. Grow prayerfully. Grow is an acronym, so I've snuck in. This is point three, but it's really got four subpoints. Grow. G stands for goal. What's your goal? So you've got God's sufficient word. What's your goal in your decision? We know that God's goal is to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Jesus. That's the goal. What goal do you have in this? In whatever way. We know that's the ultimate goal. There are other goals that are aligned with that. What's the goal? The R for grow, goal. R is the reality now. What's the reality? You're unsure about the decision you need to make. That's the reality now, whatever it is, right? Goal, reality, now. O stands for options. Options. Well, here are the options. One, are, are there other resources apart from the Bible? Good Christian books, good Christian counsel from wiser, older Christian brothers and sisters. So options, look for advice from Christian brothers and sisters who are wiser, who are steeped in scripture. Uh, what other options are there in this decision making? Just list all the options and then work out, well, in these options, what are the options that are really bent in on myself and my own interests? Because that's really what it is. But what's the option that is really aligned better with God's will? Or another way of putting it, what is the loving option in this? You see? So G, what's the goal? R, what's the reality? O, what are the options which involve other people or other good books? Or, and then thinking through what is the loving option? And then finally, W, what now? You know, what do I do now? You see? G-R-O-W. Now, that was the third point. It's all snuck in. Fourth point, keep asking what is the most loving decision that aligns with God's will. I've actually added that in already. But what's the most loving decision? And finally, finally, within this framework, if all those things are in check, take risks. Because we can take risks by faith in the God who doesn't take risks. We can just take risks then, can't we? 
Because it, it's not that we've shut down plan B of God's option for me. I'm such a poet and I don't even know it. <laughs> I can take risks in that framework because I've just, you know, kind of shut down all, because it's all a godly framework now. I can take risks. So for some of us, that means trusting God enough to give us give your money away. Others, it means holding fast to the word of God in some difficult circumstances or unpopular decision. For others, it means cross-cultural mission. Others, more evangelism. Others, more confession of sin. Others, a confrontation of sin. Others, a new vulnerability in a relationship. For some, it means getting off your butt and getting a job. For others of us, it's overcoming your fear of rejection and pursuing a lovely Christian woman or saying yes to a lovely Christian man. For all of us, it means putting aside our insatiable desire to have every aspect of our lives nailed down before our eyes, before we get there. We can take risks by faith in God with this framework because God doesn't take risks. He's sovereign, our loving Father, And we walk into the future in God-glorifying confidence. Not because we know our specific future, but because our specific future is known to God. And that's all we need to know. That he knows it. And I can trust him with it. So may you make decisions by faith in God, our loving, sovereign Father. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your love in Christ Jesus. Help us to trust you with our future. And within this framework of hearing your word and seeking godly counsel and aligning our will with yours, help us to live by faith in you, trust in you, knowing that your way is always the best way. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.